Hello and welcome to the Trialed and Tested podcast, brought to you as ever by the Education Endowment Foundation and hosted by me, Jamie Scott, from Evidence-Based Education. The topic of this podcast is social and emotional learning, specifically focused in the primary phase. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Jean Gross, Liz Robinson and Mary Palmer. But first, I speak to EEF Head of Programmes, Matt Van Portfleet. Hi, Matt. Hi, Jamie. Uh, Matt, before I quiz Liz, Jean and Mary about developing social and emotional skills, I wanted to ask you about the EEF Guidance Report, Improving Social and Emotional Skills in Primary Schools. Why did the EEF decide to produce the report? Uh, Great question. Um, So, as you probably know, we've done um, around a dozen guidance reports now on a range of different topics, but particularly focusing on academic attainment subjects around literacy, numeracy and science. And I think we felt this was an important complement to what we'd done previously. Um, Social emotional learning is an area that's of great interest um, for schools, particularly in the context of of changes to the curriculum at the moment around health and relationship education. Um, So we felt it was quite a a timely subject to focus on. Um, And also we felt there's actually really quite strong evidence um, as summarised in the toolkit and elsewhere that these approaches can have an impact both on academic attainment and a wide range of outcomes related to behaviour, mental health, for example. Um, so we felt that this was a bit of a gap, which we hadn't covered previously. Um, it complements what we've done recently on behaviour. Um, and it, we felt it was something that uh, schools spend quite a lot of time thinking about, but often isn't recognised as much um, as some of the kind of core subjects. Mm-hmm. Great. And can you tell us a bit about the evidence that informs the report? Where's it from? How secure is it? What do we know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what we did at the start was to um, do some scoping of, of the kind of landscape around social emotional learning and speaking to a range of experts and practitioners. And we commissioned an evidence review from the University of Manchester, which complemented the existing toolkit that we have um, and some evaluations that EF has commissioned. And just to give you a kind of high level summary of, of where the evidence is, yeah. um, there are around um, six large meta-analyses um, summarising impacts on social emotional learning including around 700 studies that show overall um, when schools take social emotional learning approaches um, they have an average positive impact on academic attainment and a range of other outcomes so in the toolkit that's summarized as plus four additional months progress in academic attainment mm-hmm. and that the evidence on that is extensive um, so in the, in the toolkit that means there's a large number of studies the um, there's a consistency of findings and the quality is reasonably uh, high I mean, it's important to say that when you dig into that, there's lots of variation and we might want to talk about sure. some of the factors that, that lead to more more and better and worse um, outcomes. But, but on the whole, actually, the evidence is, is actually reasonably strong, showing that when schools do social emotional learning, it can have a positive impact on academic attainment. Matt, you mentioned there some of the factors that lead to more positive um, impact. Can you uh, characterise those for us? What are they? Yeah, can, can certainly try. I think I guess one thing to, to to note from my previous response is that the vast majority of evidence so far is is international rather than UK based evidence. And a, a, an important caveat is that when some of the most promising approaches have been tried in in the UK, they've not always been as effective as as had been hoped. And mm. one of the I guess explanations for why that might be is um, the difficulties of trying to fit social emotional learning into a crowded timetable. Um, when programmes like PATH, which stands for Promoting Alternative Thinking Strategies, um, which does have a really good evidence base internationally, have been tested here, it's been less effective than, than previously. And 
one of the explanations for that is teachers have struggled to fit it in or there hasn't been buy-in from the teachers so actually thinking really carefully about um, implementation and planning for introducing social emotional learning seems to be especially important because it's one of those things that is typically seen as less core um, mm -hmm. and teachers may feel they're being asked to do it or it's being mandated and they maybe don't buy into it as much as they need to to make it effective so there's quite good evidence from some ES studies that when teachers are enthusiastic well prepared um, have supported with, with training that those those sorts of factors are, are linked to better outcomes um, in terms of academic attainment um, than when programs are poorly implemented and that's fairly consistent across the literature so so it's not about just adopting a program or not it's thinking really carefully about fit with your context and the, the kind of conditions that are necessary to make it land well yeah as with every program it's always about the implementation isn't it yeah Okay, thank you very much, Matt. I'm going to go speak to, to Liz and Jean now and see what they have to say. Fantastic. Thanks, Jamie. Thank you. Liz, Jean, please introduce yourselves. My name's Liz Robinson. I was for a long time the head teacher of Surrey Square Primary School, which is in Southwark, South London, and I'm now jointly running a new MAT uh, Trust of Schools, which is called Big Education. Hello, I'm Jean Gross and uh, I've been an educational psychologist and a teacher and led various national initiatives and one of those, uh, when I worked for the National Strategies, was the Social-Emotional Aspects of Learning programme, the SEAL programme. So I've had a long interest in social-emotional learning and contributed to the EEF, EIF guidance. Thank you. Well, we'll get started and um, we always embark on these podcasts and try to keep it as simple as possible probably more for my benefit than for the audience who's very sophisticated and knowledgeable but I don't like to assume too much prior knowledge so I would like us to start please by asking the question what is social and emotional learning? Social emotional learning is the way children uh, learn to understand their own emotions and regulate their own emotions and understand other people's emotions it's how they develop empathy it's how they learn to make relationships friendships it's how they learn to set goals and work towards them and stick at things, so it includes resilience and persistence. And there's an element of, of developing uh, responsible decision-making. I think it's interesting the way you've explained it, Jean, because when we, we, we talk about social and emotional in that order, in a lot of ways, I think, from a learning point of view, it's the other way around, that you start with the emotional, which is often starting with yourself in terms of emotional intelligence and understanding your own emotions and being able to regulate those as a foundation for then being able to be social and yes, exist in yeah. a social space and form relationships and manage disagreements effectively and all of those other things it means to be in a social space. Okay, so um, to ask a fairly obvious question, I would like to, to ask Liz, why is it important to teaching and learning? Well, teaching and learning um, is about children learning fundamentally. The teaching is always in service of children learning. And in order to learn, you have to be in a fit state to be able to, to take in information or develop new skills. And if you're not in a good state because you are not uh, feeling great and you don't have a way of understanding that or managing that or feel safe to express that, you're not going to be able to learn. So fundamentally, being able to be okay. So it's really important from an individual child perspective that they are 
in a, in, a, in a state themselves where they're ready to learn. And the other fact is that schools are social places. They're not in a one-to-one situation where you can kind of be in a, any kind of mood you like and deal with things however you like because you're on your own. You are in a space with lots of other people, um, adults and children. So being able to navigate that social space where you are there to learn and being able to learn within that context with all those different people and their different agendas and all the different stuff that happens in a classroom is absolutely critical for children to be able to learn well. And there's lots of evidence that if you do social emotional learning well in school and that's partly teaching it and partly your whole school frameworks your ethos then it will raise attainment this is an issue that schools are often worried about how do we find time for this in a crowded curriculum you know where do we put it there's so many pressures on us but there's massive international evidence lots and lots of studies that shows the impact on attainment because of just what Liz has said you can't learn unless you have these underpinning social emotional skills mm. So we're setting the conditions for learning, essentially, making sure that pupils are in the right place to learn. We are, but I'd also advocate that beyond learning, there's mental health and well-being, there's how you grow up as a responsible citizen, able to make a contribution to society. Learning is fundamental to schools, but learning is beyond, goes a little bit beyond uh, succeeding in tests. It is about... Uh, being an active, responsible citizen and making a difference to the world. I want children who can change the world by the way they are. And goodness, it needs changing. (laughs) Absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that social and emotional outcomes, they are foundational for other forms of academic learning, but they are also outcomes in their own right. And I think seeing both both those things alongside each other is really, really important. Are schools not doing this already and... Is it their job to do this, or does the responsibility lie with parents? Schools are doing it already. It's, there isn't a primary school I've ever met that isn't working on social emotional learning, and they do it in lots of different ways, everything from circle time to assemblies to RE to SMSC. You know, it's there. It's part of what primary schools feel they're about, is developing whole, whole children. But they're not always doing, delivering, doing this work in a very, necessarily in a systematic, uh, sustained way, which is based on evidence. So it can be a bit hit and miss, off the hoof, one teacher does this, another teacher does that. And what seems to work best is where there is more of a consistent approach with a, a curriculum that's developed right from early years up to year six, where children learn progressively more and more complicated skills and where they practice them across the school. So I think there's, um, there's useful learning for schools about how to, how to get the impact they want from it, which may not always be there now. Absolutely, and I, I think it, what's also important, although there's some lessons from the research and the evidence base about um, thematic approaches, what's also critical in this is being responsive to the community that you're serving. So the, the very nature of this type of learning is dependent on what the needs are of the children who are, who are coming into the community. So I think the scope and the extent to which this falls upon schools just does vary depending on where the school is in the community it's serving and in communities of very high social need there are more demands and I don't think you can get away from that and I think there's something then about the type of school that individual teachers and leaders choose to work in and understanding what those different demands are in area in very areas of 
very high social economic status, there are kind of different pressures on young people, often around you know, overachievement and crammed, you know, tiger yes. mums doing you know, hundreds of activities and being stressed out. So it's not saying that one's easier than the other, but it is important, I think, to really understand what the particular challenges are of the community that you're serving. And I'm always interested in the fact about, you know, schools may say it's not our job, it, this should be done by someone else, it should be done by outside school. And I, I reflect on the fact that the, the world we live in has changed and children used to be brought up in smallish communities with a village shop and a, a, and a pub and a, and a school and an extended family. Mm. And they learn social emotional skills. They learn them from the wiser older adults. They saw adults caring for younger children. They helped do that. So that there was a kind of an element of absorbing, having these skills modelled. Uh, in an intergenerational way. And what we have now is, I think, people live in single generations. We have a, a generation of, sort of Facebook, social media, Instagram generation, where they interact with their own age group. They don't necessarily get this uh, absorbing of social emotional skills from the adults mm. and the younger mm. children around them. So we may have to do something that we didn't have to do 30, 40 years ago. No, I, I totally agree with that. And I tell a, a story from when I was very first in my headship and a child was brought into my office um, by a very sort of angry teaching assistant and she said this child doesn't know how to behave in, in pretty strong terms and it was a real light bulb moment for me about thinking well no you're right he doesn't know how to behave and you want me to punish him and judge him for that as opposed to thinking, well, maybe it's our job as a school to teach him how to behave then. And it was, it was such a moment of clarity about the sort of disconnect that we have as teachers where we just would never speak about a child not being able to read, for example, in that way. We would see it's a core part of our, our professional responsibility. Uh, and we would bring all of our compassion, our expertise and determination to do absolutely whatever it takes to help that ch child learn to read. And it was a decision in, in my own leadership to say, actually, I, I, this, in this school, we're going to take teaching children how to behave just as seriously Seriously. as we take children you know, yes. learning how to read yeah. so and that we, we can't we can't ignore the fact that the pressures on schools and the incentives on schools are not balanced <laughs> in terms of that we don't have a balanced scorecard of how schools are graded and judged by Ofsted in terms of outcomes and test scores it's heavily heavily weighted towards a certain element of academic success that's measured and so schools aren't incentivized in the same way or it's not recognized in the same way when you do take those other aspects um, as seriously and of course those are some of the trade-offs sadly that schools have been facing in recent years I think. Yeah, yeah. Now I know Liz and I completely agree on this this idea that children need to be taught skills and when you think about cell and how you manage behavior in schools we building on what you said you wouldn't dream if a child couldn't read of punishing them till they could or keeping them in or giving them detention till till they could or even rewarding them necessarily if they did you would say this is a straight teaching job now to me to you to both of us that is the same thing it is a teaching job rather than a punishing and rewarding job um though you know there are some that you can work with punishments and rewards and there's a whole group of children i categorize behavior problems if you like into four groups uh, there are, there are children who can behave but choose not to, and they are the children who do have social and emotional skills, but right now it's more fun 
having a laugh, making others laugh at you. Or anyway, we haven't got the rewards and so on right in the classroom. They're choosing not to. Now, those children can respond really, really well to straightforward sanctions and rewards and frameworks. Mm -hmm. Then there are those children who, who I'd say can't behave because they don't have the underpinning skills. They don't know how to manage their anger when they get really um, furious. They don't know how to manage worries and so on. They don't know how to make friends. Uh, so those are the children who, who really do need self-teaching. And there are a couple of other groups, those who I say they, they can behave but lose it. So their children have special emotional skills, but there are stresses in their lives, their granddad's died or something happens at home, so they may lose it. And for that group, we need those whole school frameworks that have lis listened to them and helped them process these events. But then sadly, there's another group who, who can't behave mm. because they've experienced trauma. And... For them, I wouldn't want anyone to go away thinking for that for those children who've experienced major trauma that just classroom teaching of social emotional skills will sort their mm. issues. It, it won't. They need something more specialist. They need to learn social emotional skills in a very different way. They still need to, but they need more specialist help to do so. So perhaps that might help people see how does mm. social emotional learning fit with traditional behaviour management? So um how can we help pupils to improve their, their attitudes and, and behaviours and to be in control? Well, if I kick, up, kick, kick off on that, uh, very much picking up on what we were just saying about m empowering people to feel in charge of their decisions. So what are the options that are available to you? That's a fundamental experience of being empowered to make a choice about what you're going to do. And that's been our experience at Surrey Square as a way of teaching this in a holistic way. And we've done that through using a set of core values. So there are no rules at Surrey Square. There, there are no school rules. There are a set of seven values. And those values are what we call personal excellence, our personal excellence curriculum. So to show personal excellence is to embody all of those seven values. And what that means is that uh, everybody in the school because they apply to everybody the adults as much as the children but everybody is empowered and in fact has to take responsibility for thinking about and making decisions about their behavior and the choices they make and the frameworks that are built around that cr create a context in which they can have the the metaconscious sort of discussion and the metacognition to think well was that a good decision did that work if it, what was the consequence of that decision um, and if that was good great what do I learn from that and if it was less than good how do I understand what happened and think about how I might make a different decision in the future so what, what's really important I think about our experience of that is is how do you shift this from being kind of something that's discreetly taught and that the adults have all the answers about um, but that into something which can be much more fundamental about how um, children, very young children, we have a nursery starting with two-year-olds, vulnerable two-year-olds, uh, how they can start to actually be empowered to make their own choices about their behaviour, but within a framework that contains that and which supports them to go through that process of reflecting and understanding about what what is a good decision at a certain point. In contrast to a set of school rules, which says, do do this and don't do that. So from what does a child learn from that they learn you know to do what they're told and so uh, you know a simple example like don't run in a corridor most most schools have now moved away from negative wording if rules. so even if it says walk quietly in the corridors which is a sort of improvement on don't run you know um what does the child learn from that you know 
don't you know being told by adults walk in the corridor walk quietly as opposed to we show responsibility when we move around the school which is what we might talk about at Surrey Square. So how, how are we showing responsibility as we move around the school building, given that there's 500 of us in a, you know, in a building together? So what does that look like? Mm. It's like, okay, well, yeah, I'm going to move sensibly and quietly so I don't disturb anybody. And it, it, it's, a different, it's a different process for the child to take you know, responsibility and understand, okay, well, why am I... You know, why should, how, what's the right conduct in this situation? Mm. Which then you think the, the, the potential for that then to be applied to other contexts at this point in their life and beyond in their life, you know, is much more significant. Where, where does this sit within a school? Is, is it part of behaviour po- policy or is it um, some, does it sit alongside it? Uh, tell us about your experience. Well, within the guidance, we're, we're, there's quite clear groups um, of different types of activity alongside the discrete teaching. There's what the adults are modelling. There's the, the general way those things are reinforced within the classroom. And then there's the whole school ethos and culture and routines and practices like assemblies and so on that, that reinforce those at a whole school level. And then there's the kind of leadership of how that is um, done in a strategic way and quality and so on is thought about. Um, so... I guess my experience of it has been over you know, a number of years is building a, an aligned and integrated system so that the whole school policies and the whole school vision for those values permeates the way mm. we do things. Mm. So it ceases to be sort of, you think about behaviour policy being something separate to um, your, you know, your culture which, which it can be in some in case, some cases, sort of how do you actually... We're teaching children to behave with every word we say and every action we take as adults in a school. Mm-hmm. You know, learning isn't just what happens in a lesson. You know, there's the, 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 the sort of unstructured or... or um, so, you know, we talk about the curriculum. There's the explicitly taught curriculum, but there's also the curriculum that, that, that children and young people experience in everything that happens to them from the minute they arrive at school or indeed before that so we're teaching them how to behave implicitly Mm. through how we treat them how we form relationships what we model to one another Mm. whether we're looking after our own well-being as adults in the school whether we can whether they can see that we can manage conflict between between Mm. each other as Mm -hmm. adults in effective ways whether we can manage our own feelings etc etc so so actually it's quite sophisticated um not to put people off starting because you know everybody's all primary schools are doing aspects of this and I guess what this guidance for me has been really powerful um, to to sort of categorize that in a way and see the different elements of how you can approach this in a really strategic way and I think think what we're saying is that you we always try to park something in a place now is this my behavior policy where does it sit and Social emotional learning sits in many different places. In Liz's school, it sits in the vision for the school. The vision of the school, to start with, the vision of the school is personal, what is it? Personal, personal and e- academic personal excellence. Personal and academic excellence. Everyone, Everyone every, every day. day. So the vision <laughs> is based around personal excellence alongside academic. So it could be, in your, you know, to start with, if it's not in your vision, then I think you're nowhere. It needs to be in your vision. It, your behaviour policy needs to be adjusted to reflect the fact that we teach social emotional skills. Your anti-bullying policy, again, will, will need to reflect the fact that the whole key to stopping bullying is teaching empathy. Um, so you will look at a whole range of policies. It will certainly, uh, quite a bit of this can sit in PSHE uh, in taught time. 
PSH lessons. I'll just give you a few examples to mm. bring to bring Please, the taught yeah. element to life, if that's okay. So if you were teaching empathy, uh, you might do an exercise in PSHE where you give children a scenario and you cut out two big newspaper footprints and uh, children work in pairs and they have to stand literally stand in each other's footprints. So one of them will stand in a set of footprints and explain their point of view, the other will stand in footprints and explain their point of view. So they have to learn about perspective taking. You might have lessons about, uh, there are lovely stories where you take the story of the three little pigs and the bad wolf from the wolf's perspective. So you think, oh, you know, actually the wolf had a had a case here you might I'm still on empathy just as one example you might in English do hot seating where you've got a character uh, in a text that the class is studying and one child is that character and sits in a hot seat in the middle of a circle of children and has to be that character and the other children question that character about how how they're feeling at different points in the text or story so this is this is this you know this can be taught and PSHE can be part of it but equally in English in history you can teach the great conflicts of the world how did they come about how were people feeling and why weren't they able to resolve uh, conflict if you were looking at oh I don't know refugees and migrants great activity show children a film about the experience of one refugee last week I was watching a short film 20 minutes about a girl who became a refugee overnight and it was just it promoted empathy and I thought you use that in the classroom you show it to the children they really understand this could happen to anyone and then you do an activity where you say to them, if you had to leave your home overnight mm. and take just five things with you, what would you take? Because that's what that girl had to do. Now, if we want to promote empathy, and this is just one aspect of self, those are some of the ways we might do it, PSHE and through the curriculum and through RE. Uh, so cell doesn't sit in one place. That's a long answer to say it's just not your behaviour policy. It's, uh, it's your vision, it's your yeah. process, mm. it's your SMSC, it's your anti-bullying. It's the... DNA of the but I think there's, all, there's also there's, there's tweaks that you can make quite easily. So most primary schools will have some form of recognition for, of success in different ways. And, you know, building from often what can be quite... So, so really thinking about, in the first instance, what are you recognising? You know, what are you praising children for? What, what is that category of things? Are you praising them for effort as opposed to just outcomes? Are you praising them just for academics? You know, how might you start to think about what is being recognised and the way that you do that through, as a starting point, what are your certificates for in assembly? You know, what are the categories that, that mm. get awarded kind mm -hmm. of thing? So star of the week, what does that really mean, being star of the week? What have you done? What, have you, what, what values or what qualities have you really shown that, that, are, that can be recognised in that way? So there's, there's kind of simple ways in, I think. And then, you know, I found, I mean, our experience is when people just get really excited about this and then loads of other things you know, start to fall out from it. So it's kind of even things like stickers, if you do that. Well, stickers, you know, just if it's a sticker, it just says great. You know, what does that really mean to a child okay they might like the specific praise hopefully that's gone with that but what about if the sticker recognized I've been kind or I've mm. been thoughtful or I've yes, shown empathy yes. or you know in our case we have the value so I've taken responsibility or you know I've shown enjoyment yeah. Uh, it, it, it promotes a different conversation. And then if they go home with that sticker and they have to tell Absolutely. their parents what they did specifically, what sure. social emotions still well, the, showed. Exactly. The sticker, the, I mean, the same is where stickers actually it. say, I've, I've shown responsibility, ask me how. Yeah. So oh, it's, lovely. you know, it's, yeah. it's deliberate. So yeah. then it, that's the point you get into more and more sort of nuance about it. So we've got to walk the walk and talk the talk and model as senior leaders, as teachers. Um, we've touched on some really nice examples there and I would like to start to sort of bring us to a close actually 
by putting you on the spot and saying, okay, what three bits of advice would you both give um, to a school, whether it's a teacher perspective or a school leader perspective, but where do we start with this if we really want to, I mean, we've said that every school's doing this in some way, somehow, but if we feel that we need to have a really concerted effort, where do we start? What would you say? I'll start with one that applies to both teachers and to school leaders. It's really simple. For teachers, give yourself permission to do this. Look at the guidance, the EF guidance, and understand that, that, that if you do this, it's not detracting from learning, it's helping learning. And give yourself permission. And for leaders, give your staff permission <laughs> to focus on cell. Really simple as one. Right. Yeah, I think I was particularly, I suppose, going into into a leader's head. Um, and I think for me, the place to start is to go back into your heart, actually, and think about why you became a teacher in the first place, and really connect with that. Because there's very few, particularly primary school teachers, but teachers in general who came into it for, you know, for purely just to get good SATS results. Mm. So I think really connecting back into your values and, and finding the energy and the passion that, that sits there is a good place to start. And I do think, you know, this guidance is, is very clear. It's got a great framework to, to audit where am I at? And we've deliberately, Julie and I have worked on, on these tools uh, for schools. So it doesn't feel like another tick box. It's not, not another, oh God, you know, how am I doing against these criteria? It's a developmental process. Every primary school in the country will be doing some of these things and doing some of them really well. So understand where are, where are we at on the journey and be kind to yourselves along the way of saying, right, well, what's the next step and how, how can we make this even better? So listen, I'm with others develop this audit tool. So there's a simple audit tool that goes with the EF guidance that schools can use to have a conversation about where they think they are now. And, and Liz has been brilliant in, in coming up with some reflective questions for schools to think about. And one of them is really, who in our school is, is brilliant at doing this already and what can we learn from them? So start starting, mm. I would think, for many leaders is saying, where is this happening really, really well and how can we spread it rather than beating ourselves up with the checklist that says, we're not doing this and we're not mm. doing that. that. That's not the way to do it. But I think for individual teachers, there are simple things they can do and the guidance suggests very things they could teach children that would help them manage stress, anxiety, show empathy, work with others, work in groups. So there are simple teachable ideas that teachers could bring into their everyday teaching overnight, you know, not too hard. But <clears throat> I would also to teachers don't try to be a hero innovator. You will always do better if what you're doing is embedded in the whole school framework and if leaders really support it. So if there's a teacher who picks up the sky and says, I really want to do this, I would suggest that they go to the leaders and say, I really want to do this, but do you think we could put together a group, me and some parents and some children and someone else from the SLT, and we could develop a plan together, but try to make it whole school rather than a lonely teacher in a classroom. I do think a lot of cell work at the moment, I see teachers doing a lot of it on their own without necessarily feeling it is something everybody is doing in a consistent, uh, sequenced way. Mm. So ask, ask to make it bigger than you if you're a teacher. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the, the last thought, I think, is to acknowledge the real pressure that school leaders are under. Say that having been ahead for 13, more than 13 years myself, um, it, it is really extreme pressure and it's not getting any less, I don't think. Um, so, you know, your own state as a leader and that of your team senior team but the, the whole staff team is really important part of this because it's very hard to 
be empathetic, to have that role, as we were talking about, containing other people's emotions and thinking about other people's needs when your own needs aren't being met. Um, and it's a bit like when you're on the aeroplane and they tell you to put your own, you know, your own oxygen mask on first. And I do think that's really relevant, um, particularly, you know, many teachers are you know, driven, they're, you know, driven vocationally to do this work and it, that that can get eroded. And I think the, the, the recruitment and retention, particularly retention kind of issues that we're facing in schools is a lot to do with that. And we talk about workload, which is an important part of that. Um, but some of it's sometimes something a bit deeper, which I think as a school, we have a res- you have a responsibility to take care of as the head to some extent. Think about what you can do um, to acknowledge that as a part of our professional work. Where's the space for teachers to talk about how they feel? Yes. <laughs> and, uh, so I've loved having this conversation and listening to you kind of making my own reflection is that this absolutely can help reignite people's passion for teaching perhaps that might have been eroded slightly by all the pressures that come with it it's a huge job but it might also sort of motivate teachers and, and get them enthused but also it then lays the foundation for everything else that comes with it and improving teaching and learning and I just want to ask maybe to draw us to a close what kind of impact can we see if we get this right well this will be modest but I think you probably need to go and visit a school that, that has got it right and you see a school in really challenging circumstances, dealing with children who, you know, terrible things happen to them every day in their lives, and yet this is a school that, that's calm, where children learn, where they're responsible, where they care for each other, where they work together in groups, where the staff feel good. <laughs> um, and staff well-being, I agree completely with, that is the context for all of this. I don't think you can do so if you've got an anguished, fragmented uh, staff. Um, so you can expect to see better learning, you can expect to see better behaviour for sure, and you can expect to see happier teachers. And for me, I'm, I'm so delighted that the EEF have done this particular piece of work, because I think you know, a lot of the previous work of EEF has been focused on, from prime perspective, on literacy and numeracy and the sort of traditional standards agenda. So for me, the fact that we've got a piece of EEF badge you know serious research and evidence showing you know not only the effect on those outcomes that matter the the, you know the academic outcomes but um, in a much broader sense the range of outcomes that that can be affected by this and impacted so I think that's a really powerful piece of work and I hope that it encourages people to reconnect with their commitment to that Mm. and really think about it in a strategic way to think about how they can be doing this not just well but really really well. So what will people find in the guidance report, just quickly? They will find six recommendations and two of those about what teachers can do in classrooms, both through explicit taught time uh, on cell and through integrating this through their everyday cross-curricular teaching. They'll find some uh, guidance on where you could choose to go if you want to buy in an evidence-based programme to teach cell. Uh, Some guidance on... um, if you devise your own, if you decide to structure your own curriculum, what kind, what you should be looking at. There are certain ways of doing this that are like having, not just teaching children, if you're teaching about feelings, I've gone to schools where they're still learning to say, understand the words happy, sad and cross in year six, when they've actually mastered that completely in nursery. So you, know, you need a progression, you need to have some clearly set out objectives, as with any learning of what you'll learn in different year groups and different 
in different places. So there's some advice about the conditions you need to have in place to develop your own cell curriculum. And then there's uh, a recommendation about the whole school frameworks, how to use assemblies and celebration and reward systems and how to work with families at a whole school level on this. And then finally, probably the most important is the leadership recommendation. What, what should leaders be doing? What do they need to bear in mind if they want to initiate work on social emotional learning in their school? So go and have a look at the guidance report where you can um, find lots more advice and guidance from Jean and from Liz and from others, all of their experience wrapped up into one report. Thank you very much for joining the podcast. After speaking to Jean and Liz, I called Mary Palmer of Settrington Primary School She's the head teacher there, and I wanted to get her perspective on how social and emotional learning is enacted in her school, and also for her thoughts on the guidance report. Hi, Mary. Hello, Jamie. Mary, what's your perspective on social and emotional learning at your school? Is it something you're actively focused on? We've been considering social and emotional learning for a long time at our school. We were involved in a local project. So when the guidance report came out, it was something that we seized upon because it really fitted with what we were doing in school anyway and helped us to look and make sure that we hadn't got any gaps and we had all our, our core work covered. And what kind of things do you do in your school to support people's social and emotional learning? Um, over the last two or three years, we've spent a lot of time looking at social emotional learning. Um, some of the things we've done is we've profiled all the pupils in school because we think it's really important that this is for all the pupils, not just a selection of them. So we profiled every pupil in the school at a staff meeting, then we look for common themes and based our PSHC work around that for an entire year, looking at the themes that we felt were most needed. We also then did some wave three level work with some of the pupils who had more specific needs that we thought really, really helped. Um, we looked through different programmes we could find to find things that fitted that. We've had lots of training as members of staff from various people locally and we've also made sure that PSHCE is in the curriculum every single week and that that doesn't slip. We were really pleased when the guidance report came out because it backed up a lot of what we were doing already but also reminded us of a couple of things that maybe we'd done in the first year and then we'd forgotten about, so it reminded us to go back to them. Mary, how did you profile the pupils? Please, can you talk us through that? When we were profiling the children, we looked at different things that would be affecting them, so home life, school life, things that were happening in class, anything that could help to support them and anything that might need a little bit of a tweak. Um, we looked at behaviour in the playground, anything we could think of that might influence those children and then looked at common themes or common areas that were causing issues and it really helps us to focus in on parts of the school day that might be causing certain children problems that in a lot of cases could quite easily be overcome when you thought about it. So is social and emotional learning integrated within the school approach curriculum or is it taught specifically or is it both of those things? Um, it's definitely both. We definitely integrate social and emotional learning throughout the curriculum but also have um, lessons where we teach us specifically so we think it's part of everything and it's for all the pupils in everything we do. What difference do you think it makes uh, taking this approach and where do you see evidence of its impact? 
Um, we can measure the impact in two different ways. So we have actually, with the help of the University of York, looked at um, measures where the children are asked questions and kind of formal measures, and we could see impacts there on the children's confidence. But we can also see it anecdotally in school, and we could see evidence, particularly the work with individual children around triggers that you would go through the same scenario every day, and then you realise by looking through the report and looking through what you could do that actually if you just helped to remove that trigger it would really really make a difference to that child and we would set off the day in a much better way i think also as well you would um see it in the evidence in their work as well our children when we had last had off said they commented on how resilient our children were and how willing they were to approach difficult problems and i think that's something we've worked really really hard on and it didn't come naturally it took two or three years worth of work and I feel really confident now that the children will be up for having a go at particularly challenging things, which ties in quite well with the new curriculum. You mentioned triggers there. Can you explain what you mean by that and give us some examples, please? A really good example was there was a little girl who came to school every morning without her book bag. And every morning it really upset her, but she still forgot it the next day. So in the end, after doing the profile and realising that this caused her a problem every morning, that we would just have a book bag in school. So she had two book bags. So she still had one at home, which made her feel happy. And she had one at school that we would bring out in the morning and put outside in the line so that when she was lining up with everyone else, she had a book bag like everybody else. And that small change made a massive difference to her and the way she started the day and therefore the way the day carried on. And can you offer any advice around friendships? If I think my daughter is choosing friends that don't respect her enough and make fun of her a bit too much, she knows this but isn't prepared to do anything about it because that confrontation makes her feel anxious and she doesn't want to lose friends. How can I or how can um, her school perhaps help her through that situation? Um, one thing we've done is used um, role play quite a lot. We often found that, that some of the children weren't meaning to be unkind and some of the other children would quite happily say something, but they didn't have the vocabulary to put it into words. And actually, when we went through role plays of situations around this and explained to them and they shared knowledge that they of ways that they could explain things and different approaches that they could use, that really helped so that the children were then able to say what they really felt rather than it coming across as maybe slightly rude. It really helped them and then it stopped situations escalating because they were able to explain what they really meant. And Murray, what do you make of the new EEF guidance report? Why should a school give it their attention? Okay, well, we think the guidance is really useful. Um, it reminds you of the essentials. It reminds you what you need to do. And I think sometimes you know you do those things, but it's how recently you last did them. And it gives you a good opportunity to go back and review. I really like the bit about being explicit about specific skills and teaching those, because I think sometimes we do things generally but actually that is a really helpful piece of advice. The importance of vocabulary we've found over recent years is massively important across everything. And to have that included in the PSHCE and all the social and emotional learning that children are involved in, that actually maybe it's just that they can't say what they feel. And I know that's come, we found that in some really good quality um, intervention support we've had as well have been saying the same thing. So that really helps tie that up for us. The emphasis on the importance of whole school planning was really useful as well because I think sometimes as a small school we tend to deal with situations on an individual basis which is good in one way but then also we need to make sure that children who are just maybe not quite as obvious 
in their behaviours also get the help that they might need. And finally, Mary, if you could offer three bits of advice to a school on their approach, their journey uh, with social and emotional learning, uh, what would they be? If I could offer three bits of advice, I think they would probably be the following. Firstly, that vocabulary might actually be one of the underlying issues that children don't uh, have the words to say what they really are thinking, which could then cause problems, but not the obvious ones. I think secondly, that this is for all pupils and it's really important that all pupils get a chance to be involved in it. And I think thirdly, read the guidance reports because that says it all. Mary, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for this episode of Trialed and Tested. Thank you to my guests, Jean Gross, Liz Robinson and Mary Palmer. And thank you for listening. We'll be back again soon with another episode. So please do subscribe to make sure you're alerted when that comes out.